Hello again. We were talking last time about the end of the first canto of Dante's Inferno, the first third uh, or canticle of the Divine Comedy, in which Virgil comes and rescues Dante from three allegorical beasts signifying some kinds of sin. We're not quite sure after 700 years of trying to figure it out, but saving him from these and saying, okay, there's some good news and some bad news. Good news is I can rescue you from all this. Bad news is you've got to go through hell to do it. Uh, you can't get there from here. And that will take us over in a moment to Canto 2, where Dante's first reaction, Dante the character's first reaction is to immediately balk and say, oh no, can't do that. Before we do that, however, and before they do that, Virgil concludes by reference to another allegorical image, the three beasts, he says, just a toss-off remark, will eventually someday be conquered by figures signified allegorically as a greyhound. And sometimes I have said that Dante's allegory sometimes lacks a key. We don't have a key to okay, clearly the three beasts represent three types of sin, but what types? And there is no, there appears to be no way to nail that down. With the greyhound, same thing, although here there's quite a real possibility that Dante may have intentionally left the identity of the greyhound uh, in some sort of enigma. Um, this signifies, the best we can do is to say this signifies Dante's political hope that someday, not just on an individual level of one sinner guilty perhaps of three types of sin, but there is a whole social level of the allegory in the Divine Comedy. This isn't just an individual quest for individual salvation. It is addressed to the whole Christian world, and there is a social and, in fact, quite a political reference that usually takes place on the allegorical rather than the literal level. And here we are getting some sort of political allegory on Dante's part. It's relevant to us because Dante was, in real life, involved in the Florentine politics of his time. He was a member of an upper-class family in the city-state of Florence. There was no nation of Italy through the Middle Ages and all the way, really, through the Renaissance, and, in fact, all the way until 1867. Italy did not become an actual nation-state until 1867, and since I'm half Italian, I can make the jokes that, you know, some people could say there isn't really one now. You know, don't like the government, wait five minutes, there'll be a new one. But at any rate, ungovernable as we Italians have always been, it was true already in Dante's time. City-states factionalized, repeating in some way the factionalism of the early Greek 
city-states back in ancient times. But at any rate, this constant political uh, uh, factionalizing and plotting and counterplotting and so forth. And we don't have to go into it, but the three main factions were the Ghibellines and the Guelphs, who split into two sub-factions of the Black Guelphs and the White Guelphs. What these stood for, we don't need, but Dante was a White Guelph, and what is, in fact, very important for reading the Divine Comedy is that the poem takes place in the year 1300. In 1302, there was an upheaval, and a whole group of white Guelphs were exiled for the rest of their lives from Florence, including Dante. Dante, the character, does not know this because it hasn't happened yet. Of course, Dante, the poet, who began writing the Inferno somewhere uh, in the year 1308, Dante, the poet, does know this, so there is a constant irony involved, knowledge on the part of Dante the poet that Dante the character does not have. And Dante will be exiled. This is, in fact, yet another way in which Virgil's epic, the Aeneid, the Roman epic, can be linked in thematically to the concerns of the Divine Comedy, because Aeneas, whom we'll hear reference to again in Canto II in just a moment, Aeneas, the Roman hero, was an exile. He was a Trojan on the losing side of the Trojan War. Troy fell, Troy was destroyed, but Aeneas led a remnant band of Trojans to found a new Troy promised by the gods, particularly by Jupiter, the king of the gods, but it wouldn't be called Troy. This was a legend, it's not at all historical, but it was a widespread belief. It finally became simply a literary convention. It would not be called Troy, it would be called Rome. The Romans actually, according to a legend, identified themselves as having derived from the losing side of the Trojan War, told in the Homeric poems, whether this indicates some sort of inferiority complex. On the part of the Romans, I'm not sure. You identify with the losers, but whatever. This was the belief. And Aeneas and his people were exiled and searching for a new place. Parallel with, at least implicitly, with the exile of the Israelites searching for the promised land in biblical terms. But the theme of exile, Dante was exiled from Florence. He never forgave those people that he considered to be responsible for that exile, which included, first of all, the entire city-state of Florence. Any time that Florence is mentioned in the Divine Comedy, it is with bitter, ironic sarcasm. And behind the factionalism, manipulating, whether, at least Dante believed this, whether rightly or wrongly, he believed the ultimate puppeteer was in fact the Pope of that time, Boniface VIII. And we'll hear much more of Dante's hatred 
for Boniface VIII uh, later on. But in other words, the Greyhound is a liberating figure. Someday, somebody is going to come and liberate all of Italy, not just Florence, but the entire land of Italy, and unite it under a single, a single figure, the Greyhound figure. There are half a dozen, as usual, scholarly candidates for who the Greyhound might be, the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry VII, but we don't, all we need is the theme of exile. And a way to look allegorically at the narrative of the Divine Comedy is that Dante will lose his earthly home of Florence, as we will all lose our earthly home sooner or later, exiled or not, and come to our true home in the kingdom of heaven, which is the only true community that there may be. So the theme of exile, which comes on the classical side at least via Virgil's Aeneid is yet another link. And this theme of exile and the bitter loneliness of exile is really an element of great emotional power at moments in the Divine Comedy. Dante was lucky. If you got exiled from a city then, it was much more much more serious matter than if, if somebody got exiled from Cleveland in contemporary times. Okay, well, I'll go live in Columbus. These were city-states. This would be more like being exiled from the entire United States, for example, without necessarily being taken in by anybody else, like an Edward Snowden, perhaps. And Dante was lucky because by the time the exile occurred, he was already pretty much the most famous poet in the area of Italy. And he found many influential, wealthy patrons, most of them controlling city-states of their own, who took him in and made him what we would call writer-in-residence and uh, subsisted on this kind of patronage. Other people might perhaps not have been so lucky. But that's what's involved, you know, just this brief reference to the Greyhound. And Canto One ends with Virgil announcing, well, we're going to have to do this the hard way. And Canto Two opens, and within about 30 lines, we get Dante's reaction to this as a character, which is basically to sit down on the ground and balk and say, hell no, I won't go. And to add to that a very significant line, I am not Aeneas, I am not Paul. You have to go on a long, and I will admit, Virgil says, to some degree dangerous and harrowing journey. And Dante basically says, Oh, no. Oh, no. I am not Aeneas. I am not a hero. I am not a, an epic or quest hero. I am not the heroic type. I write poems. You know, that's it. Nor am I a saint like Paul. For one thing, 
let's catch it when we can. This is a moment of humor in the Divine Comedy. Dante is not exactly known for his sense of humor. It's often remarked that most of the portraits of Dante from uh, the past portray this really hook-nosed, grim-chiseled-looking figure, like he's watched too many Clint Eastwood movies or something. Uh, and that probably reflects the harrowing nature of the Inferno. But it also reflects the fact that Dante is not known for his sense of humor. What humor there is in the Divine Comedy is usually a sort of a deadpan satiric humor, often at his own expense. He's quite aware of the charge of egotism that could be leveled against him for making himself his own quest hero. What do you mean, you're your own protagonist, Mr. Alighieri? But he undercuts that by making himself constantly a kind of a non-hero. He is much more in the poem a Frodo Baggins than an Aeneas, a reluctant hero, and a hero who, as here, will periodically have to be kicked in the butt to keep going, uh, by Virgil. And Virgil here has to coax him into even beginning the journey. He's quitting here before he's even starting. I am not Aeneas. I'm not a quest hero. I am not Paul. And there is something beyond even that. There is the satiric undercutting, the characterization of the character Dante as a kind of a non-hero, because Christianity distrusted the figure of the hero out of classical literature. This was pride. It isn't just Dante himself that's being undercut. It's the whole idea of a hero as this larger-than-life, titanic, admirable figure to Christianity that was just human pride puffing itself up. We are sinners. We have no reason to be proud of ourselves, even though we do have to take a journey. And the journey is along that vertical axis. I, without trying to overdo it, I did want to, in previous lectures, connect the structure of the Divine Comedy with that Mandela diagram in the productions of time, particularly the vertical axis that signifies the mythological image of the axis mundi, the axis of the world. We are on Middle Earth here, in Tolkien's phrase. There are worlds above us and worlds below, and the journey that Dante does not want to go on is up and down and up that vertical axis, the Christian version of it, of his time. Down to the pits of hell, and then later upward, up the mountain of purgatory with the Garden of Eden on top of the mountain of purgatory, and then further up to the heavens and eventually the stars where God and all the blessed souls and the angels are. He needs to travel that vertical axis, and Aeneas and Paul are a matched set here. In book six, exactly the middle book 
of Virgil's Aeneid, which has 12 books. In exactly the middle of that poem, the hero Aeneas, in order to go forward, has to first pause and go downward on a trip into the underworld. In doing so, he is mimicking what Odysseus had to do in the Odyssey, in exactly the middle of the Odyssey, book 11 out of 24 books. Both had to go down into the underworld first in order to come up and get back home again. So Virgil went downward as Dante is about to follow Virgil and do into the Christian underworld of hell. Paul, of course, author of a good deal of the books of the New Testament, but Paul right here signifies an upward journey and an annotated edition, which if you read the Divine Comedy, I do urge you to read one that has at least some endnotes or footnotes. And those notes will probably tell you at this point that this is a reference to a passage in Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul was a visionary. Paul wasn't just a believer. He had his own visions. He did not know Jesus personally in the way that the disciples did. He came later. But he met Christ in a vision on the road to Damascus. And then that was apparently not the only visionary experience that Paul had. In the opening of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul speaks in the third person as if it were happening to, as if it happened to someone else, but all the commentators agree that it is really a disguise for a per, first person reference. Paul speaks of making a journey upward. Let me read you that passage out of the King James translation. I knew a man, Paul says, in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for man to utter. Not only heaven, but the third heaven. And among the many things in the Bible that are basically enigmatic despite the common notion that the Bible and particularly the New Testament has a simple available message. There are many mysteries. What did Paul mean by the third heaven? No idea, but it's haunting, especially since Dante's heaven will have more than three levels. But here is Dante, very unsaint-like, very unheroic saying, I'm not a hero to go down to the underworld. I'm not a saint to go up and visit the third heaven or any heaven. I'm just sitting down on the job right here. And as he usually has to do, Virgil has to coax Dante into proceeding, into going any further when Dante is bulking like a mule. And the usual trump card he plays is the one he plays here. 
Well, you know, don't you want to get up to heaven? Your girlfriend, your long-lost girlfriend, Beatrice, is waiting for you up there. How do I know? Because, in fact, she sent me on the journey to rescue you here. And that brings Dante's beloved Beatrice into the poem. And we enter in upon the fact that Dante's poem is, yes, one of the great poems of Christian quest for salvation, but simultaneously one of the world's great romantic love stories. And the depth of the poem emerges at the point where those two journeys become one, and we're going to have to struggle to understand that as we go along. But what Virgil says here, in order to coax Dante, and it works by the end of Canto Two, is the ultimate source of your rescue is the love of your life, Beatrice. And Beatrice was real. She was a real person in Dante's life. Her name was Beatrice Portinari. And Dante claims in his book La Vita Nuova, uh, the New Life. Dante wrote several books other than the Divine Comedy, earlier than the Divine Comedy. And the first one was La Vita Nuova, which is a prose work telling the story of his love of Beatrice up to the moment of her death, and including the many love poems that he wrote for her while he was associated with her. And uh, it is an amazing story. If you are looking for a good translation of Dante, there are many. The one I used to teach from was a version called The Portable Dante, which has a translation of La Vita Nuova in the back of it and some very adequate notes uh, alongside the text as well. But La Vita Nuova, Dante tells the story of meeting Beatrice, who was born in the same year as Dante, uh, and uh, that was 1265, as we learned. And um, he claims that he met her and fell in madly in love with her at the age of nine. Okay, can you fall madly, eternally in love with somebody at the age of nine? That's up for you uh, to decide, but he claims that. Did that really happen, or is Dante's urge to symmetry and symbolism taking over? Because we know that in the Divine Comedy, everything goes according to threes or nines, three times three. So is he just making that up, or did they really meet and fall in love at the age of nine? Uh, they were never married, and as a matter of fact, this was love pretty much completely from afar. Dante probably never even kissed Beatrice. They did not marry because marriages in those days among the upper class were arranged, and she married a banker around the age of 18 and then died in the year 1290 at the age of only 25. 
so that by the time the Divine Comedy narrative opens, Beatrice has been dead and in heaven for ten years. She was married off to a banker. You can I've always imagined Beatrice's father saying, you are not going to marry a poet. You're going to marry a banker. Get over it. And she did. And so this was what we would call platonic love, love from afar. And yet the claim of the poem is that he would love her not only for all his life, but reunite, be reunited with her in eternity. And that it is love of Beatrice kind of the ultimate in instance in Western literature of the love of a good woman can save a man. Love of God alone was not enough for Dante. He portrays himself as, you know, you should be driven by either heroic idealism like Aeneas or love of God like Paul, but no, but at least love of a good woman can save a guy. Dante loved Beatrice, both in his early poems and in the Divine Comedy. Yes, in real life, this was a real woman. But as he wrote about her, he wrote about her framed within the conventions of a whole tradition of love and love poetry called the courtly love tradition, usually capitalized not the Courtney love tradition, that's a very different tradition, but the courtly love tradition, extremely famous because it changed and probably still, I will make a case, influences the way we think about love in our modern times when we may say, oh, I feel cynical, romantic love is dead. But we still, all you have to do is listen to popular you know, pop music and you find, uh, oh, come on, that's clearly not true. We may be a little more guarded and ironic about it and a little less openly idealistic, but the idea that the love of a good woman can save a man or vice versa is still going strong in popular culture at least. And some of the ways in which we think about romantic love Go back to this whole courtly love tradition of which Dante is one of the most famous figures. It's going to take us a little bit of talking to understand this tradition, but it's really, you can understand a whole uh, swath of Western culture, history, and literature through understanding this tradition. It's not just Dante. It seems odd to us that anybody should invent a whole new type of love. And it's not that the courtly love tradition invented love, of course. You read classical literature and you see many different ways of loving. We have the companionate marital love of Odysseus and Penelope in the Odyssey. We have the kind of fatal attraction, mad passion of Dido for Aeneas in Virgil's Aeneid. We have the purely erotic, femme fatale kind of love of Circe 
and Odysseus in the Odyssey of several dozen characters in Ovid's Metamorphoses, all of these types of love, perfectly familiar to the classical world. But around 1100 to 1200 in the Common Era, believe it or not, spontaneously a new kind of love sprang into existence beginning in the area of Provence in southern France. A group of Provençal poets that I know you've heard of, at least the name, and that is the Troubadours, began writing poems, which were actually songs because they were set to music and performed and sung, with a new kind of love in them, uh, known as courtly love, because this was largely a phenomenon of the elite and it was a cultivated product of the courts. You didn't have courtly love among the peasants. They were too, too busy digging potatoes uh, and being peasants to have the luxury of courtly love. But a new type of love, which I will simplify by giving in a list of three basic traits of courtly type of romantic love. The first and most important is the idealization of romantic love and of the beloved, which typically was a woman because the poet was typically a male. Love itself is idealized to the point where if you have not had this type of love in your life, you will have died without ever having lived. You must have this. It is a kind of holy grail to have in your life. And the beloved is therefore also idealized and worshipped in the imagery at least as if she were tantamount to a sort of secular goddess. Vestigially, when we say in a mad fit of passion these days, I adore you, we have the, the same feeling coming down through the centuries, at least vestigially. And if you look at the courtly love poems in terms of recurrent imagery, it becomes a whole language of an alternative religion to Christianity with the god of love, Eros in Greek, Cupid as we know him in the Latinized version where his mother is Venus, the goddess of love. Uh, a whole religion of worshiping the god of love and the lovers are tantamount to saints. Some of this gets into the opening of Dante's Vita Nuova. How much they were just playing with this imagery and how much they were deadly serious about it is a real question. Sometimes, yes, it was a kind of a courtly game. Sometimes, on the other hand, you have to be careful. One of the places this showed up, for example, is in the sequences of love sonnets that emerged from the courtly love tradition. And you have to be careful because a good number of the women who are being idealized in those love sonnets, the Chloe's and Phoebe's and Sylvia's and whatnot, a good number of them were simply made up for the occasion because you had to have somebody to write your sonnets about or you were just nobody. But some of them were real. 
the Italian form of the sonnet is known as the Pet Petrarchan sonnet, after the Italian poet Petrarch, and his sonnets were to a real woman, Laura. Uh, Dante wrote poems to the real woman, Beatrice, and this tradition lasted as, at least as late as Shakespeare, playing on it in Romeo and Juliet. At one point in Romeo and Juliet, Romeo and Juliet, you would not know this without looking at a text. You wouldn't know it in performance, and you'd have to have probably an annotated text to point it out. But Romeo and Juliet speak to each other in the form of two sonnets, and that immediately sets up the echo, even that late, of the uh, courtly love traditions that go all the way, as they say, back to the high and late Middle Ages this idealization of love, and yet, trait number two of courtly love, the beloved, usually a lady, is inaccessible. So it is love from afar. We saw that this played out with Dante and Beatrice. Um, she may be inaccessible simply by being aloof. When a sonnet writer speaks of his beloved as a cruel mistress, Basically, well, basically it means what we meant in high school when we said a girl is cruel, that you won't say yes. Or she could be outright married, uh, which is not necessarily an impediment in this type of love, as if it is now. Uh, one of the places this gets codified outside of literature proper is it spread from southern France up north to the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine, one of the great women in medieval history, whose chaplain, Andreas Capellanus, wrote a treatise, The Art of Courtly Love, that you can still buy a translation of, I own one. And it gives 31 at the end of it, just so you can have a do-it-yourself version of this. He gives 31 rules if you want to be a courtly lover. And the first one is, number one rule, marriage is no excuse for not loving. This was not necessarily a monogamous tradition, to put it mildly. And uh, Lancelot and Guinevere, Tristan and Isolde, this is the courtly love tradition, where the lovers are star-crossed, to speak in the language of Romeo and Juliet. Third and final trait, and we will continue this next time because this is the motivating factor that will move Dante and the poem forward, idealization of the love and of the woman. The woman is inaccessible. Here she's kind of ultimately inaccessible. Beatrice has been dead for 10 years. But hey, that's no excuse either. Just ask the author of Poe's Annabelle Lee. It's perfectly possible to be in love with a dead woman and idealize her. Third characteristic, service. That is, this is not supposed to be love as just self-gratification. Gimme, put out. Fulfill me. It is supposed to be self-sacrificing and therefore a kind of secular analogy to the self-sacrificing either of the heroism of an Aeneas or of the self-sacrificing of medieval love, agape, rather than eros. 
you're not loving the lady to be gratified. It is a kind of service. And all of the business about, is chivalry dead? Should I hold the door open for a woman or spread my coat over a puddle, as if that has ever really been done in the history of love? But all of that stuff goes back to this idea of serving the beloved in a self-effacing way. Back when you had to do more than hold up a door or give her your seat on the bus, you know, slay that dragon if you really love me. But love is a discipline, not a self-fulfillment. Your struggles and sufferings in loving will teach you, deepen you, ennoble you, bring out the best in you. Standing behind this, by the way, is a classical analog of Plato's symposium with what is sometimes called the ladder of love, from physical love with which it starts all the way up to a spiritual or intellectual love at its heights. And note the figure of the ladder, a kind of philosophical vertical axis. And eventually, Dante will climb that ladder. He has to go down first, but he will eventually climb towards the figure of his beloved Beatrice. And we will take him up on that journey. Uh, I might say, in case you're wondering if this is ever going to get underway, we are not going to go through all 100 cantos of the Divine Comedy in these podcasts. We will start jumping like a flea eventually. We can only cover some of the high points of it, or we, we literally would be here forever. It would be a wonderful thing to do in a way, but this will start picking up momentum after we've established a bunch of the background. And the courtly love tradition is among the most important background that we can establish. We're not quite done describing some of the ramifications of that tradition. More on that next time.